why is it that if you are white and affluent in America, you functionally have every available option to you for, for, for schooling your child? And it is not controversial. When somebody comes along and, and tries to offer low-income black and brown students this pretty much the same thing, well, now it's a problem. Now it's a controversy. Now it's a political controversy. Now we look at, at what she's doing and find all these reasons why she shouldn't be allowed to do it. I, I'm not making a value judgment here. I just think that's, it's kind of, we, we all need to look in the mirror and ask ourselves, why is it controversial when, when these conditions are created for, for low-income children, but they're uncontroversial uh, when, when uh, they're done every day uh, for, for white and affluent Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Ricky Pike, and joining me as always is Mr. Jonathan Astro. Now, listen, do you like a good internet connection? Yeah. Oh, wait, yeah. Like you do? Really good. Yes. I like the a very uh, crystal clear is what I prefer. <laughs> okay. Well, that's not what we had uh, a couple of weeks ago. Well, okay. That's disappointing. <laughs> uh, but to make up for that, the terrible connection <laughs> with Robert, Robert Pondicio, our wonderful guest, uh, you know, I feel the content makes up for it. It does indeed. Now, now we did have some technical issues. We recorded this over actually t- two sessions, and and there is maybe a spot towards uh, sort of the second half of the podcast where uh, things get you know a little bit hectic. But push through. It, it it's only about thirty seconds. Uh, but the the material's really good. The interview's amazing. Robert's great. His book is great. So push on through that thirty seconds. I'm good. I was good. R- Robert's good. Ricky. I was the best, actually. No. Okay. <laughs> All right. Anyway, on with the show. Robert Pondicio is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he focuses on K twelve education curriculum, teaching, school choice, and charter schooling. He worked in journalism for twenty years, including in senior positions at Time and Business Week, before beginning his teaching career at a struggling South Bronx public school in two thousand and two. He has been published in the Atlantic and the Wall Street Journal, and is the author of many books, including How the Other Other Half Learns, Equality, Excellence, and the Battle Over School Choice. Uh, about his year observing the controversial Success Academy charter schools. Robert, welcome to The New Flesh. Thanks for having me. Well, before we ask you about charter schools and your book, perhaps we can set the table a bit with some key concepts. Can you explain uh, what is meant by progressive education? Uh, when we say progressive here, we're not talking about politics necessarily. Oh, yeah. Thanks. I, I always have to remind myself to kind of define my terms uh, for an American audience, let alone for an Australian one. So, um, actually, before I even go into progressive education, let's, we should maybe say what a charter school is too, right? Like a charter school, I, I'm not sure what the Australian equivalent is, but a charter school is a school in America that is um, government funded, but privately run. Um, I gather these the, the, this whole concept of uh, government funded, but but privately run is is non-controversial in in a lot of the known world. But but here in the states, um, the vast majority of American children go to schools that are both government fund and government run. Um, you know, the traditional public schools. Um, but but on, on progressive education, no, it's 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 an important distinction to make, especially now because um, you know with our our kind of white hot partisan politics here in 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 the colonies at the moment. Um, people conflate progressive education with uh, progressive politics. And, and I, I, I think um, uh, progressive education even has a, a, a longer provenance than, than progressive politics, which, you know, about 100 years in each case. But progress, progressive education, it, I, I guess the, the easiest way to, to define it is, is by what it's not. It's not traditional education. 
It is not, you know, necessarily a core curriculum teacher-led um, uh, instruction. It tends to be more, uh, you know, Dewey-like, John Dewey-like in terms of um, school emulating real life, in terms of school being inquiry, not, you know, uh, kind of, you know, ped uh, uh, pedantry, I suppose, or pedantic. Um, the, 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 the contrast that we tend to draw is, you know, traditional is the sage on the stage as the teacher. Well, then in the progressive tradition, it's more the teacher is, quote, the guide on the side. So is this a child-centered approach to education? Is that yeah. what we call this? Thank you. Why, why, why didn't I just say that? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's exactly it. Okay. But this is dominant now. This is pretty much take – this is the only game in town now, right? Like the, you, you can't – I wouldn't say it's the only game in town, but it, it is probably um, – even, even if folks are not, you know, uh, Dewey disciples, as it were, or, you know, um, brought up in the tradition of project-based learning – there, there's probably an awful lot of um, assumptions in American education that are founded in the progressive tradition. But, uh, but you know, having said that, there, there's a lot of schools. There's a burgeoning classical education movement in this country now, small but mighty. Um, so it's it's not as if it's completely um, uh, the, the the dominant one, but it's 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 probably the way to bet. Well, if we t take a very broad picture, can can you give us an idea of how U.S. schools are doing against others globally? Oh, terribly. I mean, this is, you need me to tell you this? I mean, you know, we're the, we're the number one economy on, on God's green earth and, and, you know, near the bottom of the, of, of the charts when it comes to education and, you know, every, and I mean, I'm, I'm kind of talking out of my ear a little bit here because I focus almost entirely on U.S. education. Um, but I mean, if you look at PISA, you look at TIMS, uh, the United States has been a, a significant laggard, um, you know, in, in international comparisons for as long as I've been in education, which is, you know, over 20 years now and probably for a generation before that. So who are the benchmarks now? Because for a while it was Finland. So who are we looking at now for if we're talking what about a great question. US is yeah. the bottom? Yeah, it, it's it's a it's a terrific question because I mean so much has been thrown into um, or uh, chaos by COVID uh, that I'm not sure uh, who who uh, the, the 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 models are right now. Um, and also, I mean, for what it's worth, and I'm, I'm not trying to disregard your question. I'm just, I guess, maybe the reason I've never been terribly focused on international comparisons is because I just don't know that they're persuasive to the American context. Um, I'll give you a good example. Uh, a friend and somebody whose work I've admired for quite some time, Ashley Berner of Johns Hopkins, um, wrote an eye-opening book some years ago. Um, I think the title was No One Way to School, and I alluded to it earlier. It made the point that, look, you know, education in most other countries tends to be pluralistic. It tends to be uh, government-funded but privately run. Yes, there are you know, uh, traditional public schools in places like you know the Netherlands and England and Canada and whatnot. Um, so that's a model that's appealing to a lot of us here in the States, but I always tend to kind of throw a little bit of cold water on that by saying, look, you know, we have a cultural tradition in this country of, of, of traditional public schools of, of, um, you know, government run government funded schools. And it's going to be, you know, damn hard, frankly, to overthrow that, you know, as, as good as those international comparisons might be and as attractive as some of that pluralism might be to some of us. Um, it's it's going to be generations, I think, before we can see something like that model here. So so when you say, well, who should we be emulating? Like, well, you know, we have a particular context here in the U.S. Um, 
you know, we, you know, education is a state issue, not a federal issue. So we will never see a national curriculum like they have in other countries. So these things are interesting to talk about. But I, I, I think the sun will go out before we, we can apply them to an American context. Well, in that case, let's zero in on on uh, our current context and 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 something you know a little bit more about. If if I'm a parent today in in New York, for example, where where can my kid go to school and and what are my options? Yeah, New York. I mean, my entire education career has been in the the state of New York, and as, and as a teacher, at least in the city of New York. New York is probably, uh, I'm now going to completely contradict what I just said, it's, it's probably one of the most open school choice models that you might have, um, you know, because of, of population density, because of the robust charter school ne- uh, or uh, ecosystem that, that exists in the, in the city of New York, hundreds of charter schools, there, there's far more choice um, in, in New York. Um, than in most other places um, in the states. Um, certainly, you know, far more than you would see in in rural or suburban areas. But in terms of, you know, most of the the, the really robust choice markets that exist in America tend to be in in major metropolitan areas, and and New York. Um, you know, well, look, New York, the school district, the public school district, is the largest one in the country. There's over I think one over one million kids in the city of New York. Yes, most go to traditional public schools, but there are hundreds of charter schools. There's a, a fairly advanced and robust collection of private schools, albeit very expensive ones. But um, yeah, there, there, there's more choice in New York than just about anywhere else. Mm, well, we, we hear that term school choice thrown around a little bit. Um, what do we mean by school choice and, and, and why is this so so controversial, school choice? Yeah, it's it's it certainly is contentious. I, I alluded to part of it before. I mean, I think um, you know even those of us who are school choice advocates, and I count myself as one, need to be mindful of the fact that uh, you know choice might be a non-starter for a lot of Americans for a couple of different reasons. Not merely because people are anti-choice, but as a practical matter, it, it's not always available. So I'm, I'm speaking to you from a fairly rural community in upstate New York, about you know an hour and a half, or about three hours from New York City. Um, pretty much every single kid um, that I'm aware of up here either goes to the, the, the central school district or a small handful are homeschooled. Um, if, if you want a charter school, there really aren't any uh, within an hour's drive. If you want a private school, um, you can get one, but you're going to have to drive you know, 45 minutes at least um, to, to the Albany uh, area, about you know, 45 minutes north of here. So as, as a practical matter, choice is really a non-starter. Now, may, maybe you know, the, the day is coming where, where the technological te- technology exists uh, to, to make, um, you know, uh, remote schooling a more attractive and robust option than it is at present. Um, but as a, again, as a practical matter, if you live in, in my neck of the woods, your kids go to Greenville. That's it. Period. Full stop. Um, so that's a, that's a challenge for, for, for the choice community right there. And then, then of course, there are some, you know, obvious political hurdles as well. Um, you know, there's a, a, a very strong, not just a tradition of, of public schools, but there's, you know, there, there's a lot of political, um, support for them, whether it's teachers unions, um, you know, wh- whether it's the, you know, the, the we have the famously a uh, you know, Republican Democrat red blue divide in this in this country, 
And Democrats are all about traditional public schools, and they view any managed man. I'm broadly oversimplifying, gentlemen, but for the purposes of you know moving this conversation quickly, the political left tends to be all about public education, and any anything that smacks of an alternative to that is quote you know robbing the public school system of resources, etc. So you know, again, I'm sounding like I'm not a choice guy. I'm very much am a choice guy, um, but I think we need to be clear-eyed about the challenge that school choice faces uh, in America. So before we get on to uh, your book and success, just a couple more things. You mentioned the unions there. I'm I'm interested in their opposition to to this. They well, I think opposition is a is a no is not quite strong enough. Uh, you know, for example, and <laughs> I, they seem vehemently uh, opposed to to this. So can you maybe? Yeah, I mean, well, why wouldn't they be? That's their job, right? I mean, you know, one of the most famous teachers union leaders in in my lifetime, uh, the former uh, head of the AFT, the American Federation of Teachers, was was a guy named Albert Shanker, who famously or perhaps infamously said, when students pay dues, union dues, I'll represent the interests of students. So I mean, but I mean, as a as a matter of fact, that's he's correct about that, right? I mean, you know, the, the union's job is to safeguard their 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 workforce, look out for the interests of teachers. So, it, you know, we we all spout the homilies of oh, of course we care about children, but I'm not sure why anybody would expect a, a union of adult uh, of teachers to do anything other than safeguard the interests of those teachers. Well. Uh, <laughs> We can get into we'll get into uh, Eva Moskowitz a bit later, but uh, just having a little bit of a read of her book, the the U comes across really bad in the book. They they, sure. they, they, they come across like uh, it's it's Jimmy Hoffa stuff the way the way that like uh, <laughs> rusted on <laughs> powerful organization really. Uh, I'm just fascinated how. Let's, let's be really clear here. We, let let us not accuse the unions, whatever anti- antipathetic uh, feelings we might have about them. As far as I know, they have they have never buried bodies. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, all right. I'll, I'll admit some hyperbole there, but but still, they do come across bad. It's so fascinated yeah. as to how they manage to uh, keep the 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 idea that they they care the most and that because you go to their website and it's it's very very nice but but some of the, oh. the ad hominem attacks and the and the organizing and handing out of of cue cards to get people to get yeah. people to ask questions like you know and, and to tear people down i mean i'm fascinated by this this is very dirty stuff no I, and look uh, i mean i'll, I'll kind of confess my background here for, for the, the the entire ed reform movement for the last you know 20 or 30 years has really set itself in, you know, n- not just in um, political opposition, but moral opposition to, to the teachers' unions. Now, you know, full disclosure, I've, I've never much bought into that rhetoric. Um, when I was a public school teacher, you know, I was a, you know, union member. I had to be. I mean, you couldn't teach in the New York City School District unless you were part of the bargaining unit. So I, I would always find myself saying, like, look, if you gave me a magic wand, to you know, wave at American education. I, I'd get around to defanging the unions, but it wouldn't be the first thing I would do. You know, it might be like you know, sixth or seventh on the list. I, you know, I tend to focus on things like curriculum and instruction and whatnot. Look, that said, the last couple of years have been, you know, sobering. Um, you know, um, I've written about this a, a, a bit. Randy Weingarten, the head of, of our second largest teachers union, but perhaps our most public and political one, uh, the, the 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 AFT, the American Federal 
Federation of Teachers, you know, she's kind of been on this campaign for a couple of years. And I mean, I don't want to be outrageous here, but I don't think I'm overstating the case to say that she has been caught out lying about some things, you know, like saying, for example, I've been trying to open schools safely for, you know, 18 months while at the same time lobbying our centers for disease control to kind of keep restrictions in place to keep kids, you know, out of, out of schools and whatnot. Um, and yes, there have been, you know, instances of, um, you know, what, what does it mean to reopen schools safely? Well, it means, you know, passing new laws to restrict charter schools. Well, what the hell does that have to do with, you know? With so, so, I mean, I think they have been guilty, and I'm trying to be measured in my response here, They've been guilty of overplaying their hand a little bit in in the last 18 months. So so guys like me who have not, not viewed unions as good guys, but not necessarily, you know, the sum and substance of all that ails American education, it, it, it's been a kind of a sobering, you know, um, a, a couple of months or a couple of years to kind of you know, maybe rethink some of those assumptions. Now, I, 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 we're desperate to get uh, into the Success Academy, but I just, I had a follow-up question to that. It, it may be a silly question, but do we need a student's union? No, I, you know, I, I, it, I'm not sure what that would accomplish, uh, honestly. Um, and I'm, I'm, you're kind of taking me out of my depth here because, you know, I, I do tend to focus on issues of curriculum and instruction. Um, you know, um, what happens inside the classroom, that's kind of my bailiwick. I, I, I'm not naive about the politics of, of education. Because, you know, in other words, I always, you know, you say this all the time that, you know, education isn't above the fray, it is the fray. And what I mean by that is, it exists in a public government context. So you, you, the idea that you're somehow going to to get money out of education, to get politics out of education, well, you know, isn't it pretty to think so? It's it's, it's not going to happen. So you know, sure, you know, you hear you know parents unions pop up and students unions pop pop up, but I mean, you, you're you're competing then with with uh, professional organizations representing millions of of dues paying paid professionals. Who have been doing this for a very, very long time. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a lovely notion, but I'm just not sure that it would get much political traction. I, I think we're we're seeing more traction among parents right now. There's a there's you know some organic grassroots parent activism that has popped up in the last couple of years, uh, often driven by the response to COVID, that seems to be having some real effect in terms of you know running candidates for school boards flipping, you know, state level elections. I, I think that's probably a more um, potent strategy than a so-called students union. Well, perhaps you can tell us what is Success Academy? Yeah, uh, thanks for asking. Um, so, um, I mean, I've kind of hinted at some of my background. I mean, I was a public school teacher in, in New York City, South Bronx for, for several years, starting 20 years ago. Uh, there were very few charter schools uh, in the city or in the South Bronx at that time. You know, 20 years later, there's, as I alluded to earlier, a, a robust charter school community in New York City and elsewhere. Um, so uh, maybe the best known for reasons both good and and you know issues of controversy is is what is Success Academy. Th these schools did not exist uh, when I was a, t a, a teacher 20 years ago, at least when I started. The first one, I think, started in 2006. Um, it was founded by a woman named Eva Moskowitz, who is a bit of a lightning rod figure uh, in New York City and, and more broadly in, in the States. Um, and, and what I thought was interesting, I got interested in Success Academy because you know, the conventional wisdom on charter schools uh, in, in America is that Oh well, in the main, you know, they they are they're no better, no worse. You know, their 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 data, their reading and test scores, math scores show that they're you know, they're about the same. Well, 
Success Academy stands not just above that, but far above that. Um, you know, year after year, they would keep adding more schools and keep getting better test scores. Uh, I, I think I said this in the book. There, there's literally no such thing as a bad one. I think at this point, uh, from memory, they're up to about you know nearly 50 schools and you know, uh, well over 10, I mean, almost 20,000 students. In other words, they're the size of a decent-sized American public school district now. And there's literally not a bad one. I think you know the 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 weakest one, the worst the worst one, has like eighty five percent of their kids passing their state reading test. The worst one has like ninety percent of of their kids passing the math test. So if you do what I do for a living, if you're you know looking at um, well, how do we kind of you know balance the scales and get a better education for for low income kids of color in places like the South Bronx and, and Harlem where I've taught. Well, then you look at the results that a Success Academy and Eva Moskowitz's schools post. You think, what the hell are they doing? How are they, how are they getting these insanely good results that just get better and better? And and, and the the contrast to other you know charter networks is is important because there are any Success Academy is by no means the largest charter school network um, in in America. But they, in terms of the consistency of results, they are head and shoulders better than anyone else. I mean, no matter which, you know, of our well-known charter networks you want to mention, places like KIPP, Achievement First, Uncommon Schools, Yes Prep, there's always an outlier or two or 12, you know, some schools that are just, you know, just not not as good as their best ones. Well, I mean, the the the, the size, scale, and incredible uniformity of Success Academy's results just makes them a fascinating object study. So um, I remember I wrote a piece in the New York Daily News some years ago um, saying, you know, someone needs to get up to Harlem and figure out what they are doing. <laughs> a few years later, it turned out that was me. Um, you know, I, I managed to talk her into letting me embed in one of her elementary schools, which was coincident, maybe not coincidentally, I, I kind of, you know, steered it this way, literally across the street from where I'd been a student teacher and in the same school district where I'd been a teacher. So that that gave me a kind of a, a good lens, a kind of a nice compare contrast exercise. So yeah, I spent a year, um, you know, uh, observing, uh, being being kind of a fly on the wall in in uh, Success Academy Bronx One. This was now four or five years ago. Um, really, with an eye towards, you know, what are they doing and what can we learn from from this charter school network that we can apply not just to other charter schools but to to K twelve education in America more broadly. So the the question remains, uh, Robert. What are they doing? <laughs> what are they doing <laughs> day to day? Exactly. I suppose, I suppose, yeah. because we talk, uh, we've started talking about big concepts. But I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm with you. I, I'm interested to know what goes on in a day. Like, what are they doing in the moment, teacher to teacher to student, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean, uh, spoiler alert. Um, and I don't remember if I said this directly in the book or not. Um, probably sure I did. It's now a few years ago. Um, so forgive me if I don't have have the language in front of me. But you know, uh, my interest in education and writing about education since I left the classroom has been almost entirely on what I said before, curriculum and instruction. So I walked into Success Academy expecting to write a book about curriculum and instruction because that's what I do. And I think I almost by mistake accidentally ended up writing a book about school culture because at the end of the day, that seemed to be what the real difference was. Candidly, I, you know, uh, I, I wasn't necessarily a huge fan of their curriculum. You know, they, they do a lot of stuff that I've written critically about over the years. Um, you know, um, balanced literacy, leveled reading, you know, practices that I've kind of, you know, made a living kind of dumping on if I'm, if I'm being really candid. Um, you know, 
their, their approach to, to, to math was um, and is fairly progressive. You know, a lot of, uh, a, a lot of discovery, a, a, as it were, um, learning. Um, and and it was, I, I was the guy who drilled my kids in their math times tables. You know, that was just, you know, that was just what I did. I was very traditional in my approach to, to, to math. And, and I found their approach to math kind of eye-opening. Um, but but at the end of the day, I think the real difference maker was their school culture. And, and we can talk about some of the mechanics of it. Um, but I think what makes the school controversial is they've, they've long been accused of creaming, which is a word that we use to describe, you know, cherry picking students to get the best and the brightest students in a school. Um, you know, I, I won't belabor it now. We can talk about it if you like. But but what I discovered had been hiding in plain sight for quite some time. It's really not they're, not, they're not cherry picking students at all, um, but they do put some hurdles in front of parents. And it's, it's important to note the context here. Um, almost, you know, overwhelmingly, the parent body of Success Academy, all their schools tends to be low income, urban, black and brown, as it were. In other words, exactly the same families I used to, uh, kids of those families I used to teach. Um, but um, they kind of put their thumb on the scale. I don't want to be unkind because I don't want to suggest that they're not adding value. They're adding value tremendously. But suffice it to say, it's it's pretty hard to get into Success Academy if you are not walking in with both eyes open, if you are not deeply committed to their you know their their program and pedagogy. Uh, frankly, if, if you don't if you're not from a two parent family and don't have the bandwidth to meet all their parental demands, it's kind of hard. So you end up. Um, with a parent body that um, is highly motivated, uh, deeply committed, deeply engaged, um, and if you're not those things, then then you end up not at Success Academy. Now, you know, sorry, I'm, I'm meandering here a little bit. I, I don't want to leave the impression because I've been accused of leaving the impression, frankly, by people within Success Academy, of leaving the impression that it's all the parents. It's not. Uh, I mean, I can't say this strongly enough. In in New York City there are any number of so-called gifted and talented schools where they literally do cherry pick the kids. Um, Success Academy gets results that blow them away. So what's fascinating about Success Academy is with this coalition of the willing, so to speak, with parents who are buying what even Moskowitz is selling, they achieve results that not even the, the, the gifted and talented programs in, in New York City can match. Uh, and in fact, if Success Academy were a standalone, if they were indeed a standalone public school district, they would be outperforming even the very best and most affluent suburban school districts in America. If I, if I haven't made this clear, that's what makes them an interesting object of study, because they do show what can be done when you align all the stars perfectly in, 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 uh, in the lives of children who otherwise would be getting a quite mediocre education. Oh, there's so much to, to pick apart there. Well, I, I suppose I have a quick follow-up on this idea of, of creaming. Well, firstly, did they they run a lottery, which you which you cover in your your, your right. book. Now, as for the hurdles or the expectations on parents, what are the ex expectations on parents any different from what uh, you would expect at a high performance school like like yeah. Eaton or something? Or I don't know. You know what I mean? Um, couldn't say with Eaton, um, or an American but, equivalent, uh, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, like... yeah, yeah. Well, that, 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 that's where this gets interesting, right? Because, um, well, first of all, let's talk about those hurdles. So, um, for, for listeners who are not aware, um, because these are public schools, public charter schools, there is what you just correctly termed a lottery. In other words, if you have a hundred seats and 200 people want them, well, then you hold a lottery. Um, and the first hundred names that get drawn, get those seats. 
So this leaves the impression, and, and frankly, this has been, you know, a, a talking point for for folks in the charter school world for 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 decades now. Well, of course, we have a random sa- sampling of kids. Look, we have a lottery, so we can't put our thumb on the scale. Correct. Okay, but what what um, what success does is um, th- there's there's roughly at least the time there were like six applicants across their network for every one seat. So that suggests that you've got a one in six chance of getting in. Well, the lottery's in April. Before school starts in uh, at the end of the summer, there's any number of hurdles that they put in front of parents. First, you have to um, come to a welcome meeting. You know where. Where and, it, and it's kind of a bit of scared straight. I mean, they are emphatic to their credit. They are they are very clear about their school culture and their their expectations. You know what they stand for, what they will not stand for. Um, and and some number of parents listen to that and they say, yeah, not for me. And they and they 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 make other plans. Um, you know, some parents just don't come to the welcome meeting at all. They're dropped. Then comes uh, you know a conf- you have to confirm your interest in writing. Uh, then there's all this paperwork you have to sign out. Then there is a uniform day where you, even if you're on the waiting list, you have to come and be fitted for a uniform. Then there's a dress rehearsal, on and on and on. Um, what these, um, you know, rightly or wrongly, what these these um, hurdles, uh, in my description, not theirs, do is is they kind of winnow out the unserious. If, if you are not uh, able to, um, you know, keep up, if you are not um, um, able to show up, you know, um, time and, and show up and show up and show up time and time again, you tend to fall away. So by the end of this process, um, and because there are demands made of, you know, uh, not just of showing up, but a parent's time, you know, you got to read with your kids, you got to log the books that you read with your children, um, you know, night after night, uh, it, it sets a culture whereby only the most motivated parents persist through the enrollment process. And by the time school starts six months later, um, I, I don't want to give the idea that every single parent is, you know, kind of, you know, a tiger mom, as, as it were. But there's enough of them that it kind of just changes the temperature. You know, it's it's um, you know, it's 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 uh, it, it sets a tone, it sets a culture um, and it sets, frankly, a level of parental compliance with school demands that sets the stage for everything that comes after. So you you mentioned the word culture there. Uh, what, what are some of the hallmarks of successes culture? Yeah, it's it's um you know th- there's there's a um there's a tradition. Okay, I guess I can't call it a tradition because it hasn't been around long enough. But in the in the early heady days of the charter school movement, a lot of our best known charter schools um, uh, rallied under the banner of no excuses. We were no excuses schools. That has since become a bit of a tainted brand. I'm I'm one of the only people I know that still embraces it because I'm old enough to remember what was meant by a no excuses school. It meant there are no excuses for adults to fail children. If children, even you know kids who come from the most disadvantaged, hard scrabble backgrounds, they should be able to achieve. And if they don't, it's not because they failed; it's because adults failed them. So that's what no excuses, you know, in its original incarnation meant um, was just you know creating you know adult. Um, motivations and habits of practice to ensure uh, that that kids will be given every opportunity for success. Um, Eva Moskowitz, the, the, the founder of success, loves to say, we are not a no excuse school. I do not understand that nomenclature. And frankly, my response as a third party is to say, darling, not only are you <laughs> a no excuses school, you are the most no excuses. Okay? <laughs> that, 
that's that's the culture, whether she, whether she likes it or not. Um, you know, they they really do push um, every adult in a child's life. They push themselves hard. Uh, they 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 you know have a just so adult culture. They make prodigious demands of parents. It's I mean it's interesting. You know, it was it, and I I think this still happens. You know, every charter school I shouldn't say every, but you know, it's a common thing for schools to make parents sign a you know parental contract. You know, where they are you know, agreeing to, to uphold the kind of the standards and, you know, and the obligations of parents, et cetera, et cetera. There's a difference between the parent contract uh, at Success Academy and a lot of other schools, and it's, they mean it. You know, they, they uh, you know, they, they will, they will take that contract out and remind parents, you know, when they're not keeping up on homework and, and reading, like, you signed this thing and, and, and we meant it. So they do. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know. So do you think that, in, in, do you think enforcement is part of it? Yeah. Oh, sure. No, no, no question. I mean, and, and look, this is the dark side of this. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not Moskowitz's cheerleader. I'm, a, I'm a, an admirer of what she's because I think I have a keen understanding of just how difficult it is to do this work well. Um, but she absolutely plays that card. And the dark side of this, uh, I detail some of it in, in the book. There are any number of parents who insist that they were pushed out, you know, or, or, well, I, that that sounds overly aggressive. Either that they couldn't keep up with the you know incredible intense parental demands, or in in some cases they were indeed um, you know un, basically uh, nudged out. In other words, they were constantly called in to respond to behavior problems. They had to leave work. Um, uh, kids getting suspended repeatedly, which you know means you can't go to work when you're when your kids are are suspended or or you know parents or administrators suggesting that hey this is not the right setting for you you should be in 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 you know in a school that offers a, these services that we don't have um you know i i do think that some of those claims are a bit overheated but i can't say that they're nonsense because there was at least one case in the book where parents made a, a very vivid for a student i saw quite often ended up leaving the school and and the parents told a horrific story about being uh, in their mind, forced to leave the school. So, um, you know, it, it's there. There's there. There is or can be a dark side to this. Just to follow up, there um, is it a case where um, students and parents just can't cope and they end up dropping out, or are there ever cases where where they're actually told to leave by the school? You you cannot tell a a, a family to leave like that. That would be you know illegal. Um, that that's exactly the point. So I I, I do think that. Um, the majority of parents who leave um, pull their kids out of Success Academy, it's because it's either you know they're they're they're, they're unhappy for any number of reasons they don't like the demands their kid has a t- tough time keeping up um, the the complaints where a parent feels that they have been pressured to leave um, are fewer but 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 troubling uh, but to be absolutely clear. Uh, you cannot. The, the private schools can do it. Like uh, the, the tuition-paying private schools can absolutely tell you, uh, as a parent, look, we just don't think this is the right environment for your child. Uh, let's help. Let us help you find uh, other options. You cannot do that in a, in a in a public school in the United States. So, in terms of the staff, who teaches here? What kind of people teach at, at Success Academy? That's a, that's a great question, and thanks. It's, it's fascinating because um, you know, I was talking about the history of, of no excuses schools. I think I detail this in the book. You know, one of the things that kind of survives from that those schools and that culture, um, you know, 
now as then you you would you know you go into um charter schools and some urban schools where like you know uh, uh, teach for america candidates are teaching and, and we we don't uh the schools don't have numbers like you know room 222 they're named after colleges so you know your your school or your your classroom is named michigan or harvard or stanford or texas or some such um a lot of these charter schools still maintain those that that uh, that feature because they're trying to really kind of normalize college attendance from from a very very young age. So it was it was you know quite common in the early days of this if you'd walk down the halls of a KIPP or or an Achievement First to see exactly those first rate you know colleges you know Middlebury, Harvard, Yale, Stanford. What's fascinating when you walk down the halls of Success Academy is how and I don't mean this to be um, dismissive how ordinary. The colleges are in other words it's suny oneonta where i went to school state school um it's um marist college it's fordham you know perfectly fine schools but not these super elite colleges that they you know, the, the classrooms were named by a generation ago at bronx one one of the schools one of the the, the classrooms a kindergarten classroom was named bmcc for for borough of manhattan community college this was fascinating to me because one of the theories of change in American uh, education charter schools was that, oh, we want to attract the best and the brightest um, to inner city classrooms. Um, well, whatever Success Academy is doing, they're doing it with the same, I mean, those schools that I mentioned before tend to be the colleges in New York that produce the most teachers. Um, so, so they are not uh, buying into this ethos of, oh, we need to get the best and the brightest from our elite institutions. They are getting this done with the same graduates uh, that other schools uh, or that, that have that tend to produce you know New York City school teachers now you know they're they're squinting for you know uh, what we would say skill and will you know attitude and whatnot um, you know uh, malleability um, what one, one of my favorite stories I did not make it into the book because I did not hear about it until after it was published a woman who was involved in teacher recruitment uh, told me, and this will sound horrible. Um, she said she used to she used to like making teacher candidates cry when <laughs> during their demo lessons, and then she quickly said, "Well, no, not because I like making them cry, but if they if they get totally thrown off their game, and you give them feedback, and then they reteach it, and you see them, you know, incorporate the feedback, well, then you know that's somebody who listens, takes feedback, is flexible." So it's not like they, they were looking to be mean. That's what they're looking for. They're looking for, you know, teachers who can like check their ego at the door, so to speak, who can who can take hard feedback and and um, put it to work immediately. That's the model of the teacher, regardless of where they come from, who tends to be successful at success academy. Yeah, I got I got the sense in the book that they were they, that these were young impressionable oh, types who 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 was, who fit into a military sort of uh, unit. Yeah, um, I, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to, to describe it because I make that comparison to, to to the military for a slightly different reason, which we can talk about. But yeah, with, without question, the 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 Success Academy teacher from Central Casting is very young, um, probably fresh out of college. Um, you don't meet that many veteran teachers. You don't meet really any who are you know um, in their 30s and, and certainly 40s. Uh, I mean, I you know I'm, I'm in my 50s now. I would have loved to have learned how to teach at Success Academy, but there's no way in hell I could teach there now because I'm just not capable of that maintaining that level of effort anymore. I'm just I'm just too old. I need to you know lay down and take a nap. Um, but they 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 absolutely do get what they uh, get done 
on the backs of you know young, hardworking twenty uh, somethings who uh, look. And this is another downside: they they turn them over awfully quickly. You know, um, uh, you don't meet that many veteran uh, success academy instructors. You know, they 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 are there for a couple of years. And this is the military analogy I made. It's kind of like. It's kind of like the, the the military in that you've got a steady stream of young recruits as your foot soldiers. Your institutional memory, your officer corps, tends to be you know the folks who work at the network office who've been there for a few years and and kind of work with those younger people. But look, this is you know think this through. This is what makes it a fascinating model because the the conventional wisdom pretty much everywhere is oh you need to be a teacher you know for you know three five ten years before you know which end is up. Well, they're getting these incredible results with with kids who've been in the classroom not for ten years but ten minutes, you know, and and that's because they've got this this program, you know, that that works very 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 effectively. But that's kind of almost an existential challenge to the way we think about education, right? If the assumption has been you need to be an experienced veteran before you can put up results, uh, Success Academy is your outlier that says you can get at least if if, if you want to keep score by test scores, which is you know part of what we do in this country. Well, then they're getting exceptionally good test results with with relative neophytes. So, is it also fair to say that what they've done is is almost entirely due to culture and procedure and logistics and enforcement, rather than they're essentially using the same curriculum as every, or rather, an unexceptional curriculum to to get extraordinary results? Is that a fair assessment? Well, uh, a, a slight overstatement, but I'll, I'll nuance it somewhat because this kind of was my, my existential challenge. Because as I've already confessed, you know, I'm a curriculum and instruction guy. I really, you know, I, there's no magic bullet. All the parts in a school have to be, I think, effective to get good results. Um, but my, you know, assumption has always been that it's hard to get good results with, you know, less than best in breed curriculum. This is not the question that you asked, but I'll kind of go in this direction. If if my purpose in spending a year at Success Academy was to answer the question, you know, is this a model for American education at large? The, the, the spoiler alert, the large answer was no, not really, with some exceptions. And the it, not the curriculum per se, but the function of the curriculum was absolutely, to my mind, the thing that we should steal uh, in the rest of American education. And, and here's what I mean by that. Um, the, the, I'm not sure what, how it is in Australia, but in America, teachers spend an extraordinary amount of time customizing lessons. Um, I remember so vividly in my first days as a teacher at PS277 in the South Bronx, who said, well, Mr. Pandisio, you're the best person to know what every child needs. And I, I thought she was making fun of me. Like, I thought this was a hazing ritual. Like, I, that can't possibly be the right answer, lady. Like, like what am I supposed to teach? Um, it turns out she was not mocking me. Um, that's just kind of the way we think about the, 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 the job of the teacher. And again, this gets back to that progressive tradition that we talked about uh, at, at the start, where, you know, you, you are to teach, uh, teach to a standard, but it's up to you to determine what, you know, every child's interests and, you know, and, and customize lessons so they, you know, engage children, etc. Well, at Success Academy, the model is quite different and, and I think quite persuasive. They, they they do not fetishize um, you know customizing the curriculum. They they do not send teachers off to Google and Pinterest and and a website called Teachers Pay Teachers for twenty and thirty hours a, a week to to you know cobble together lesson plans on the theory that you know they're the best person to know what their 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 students need. No, it's here's your curriculum. Teach this, and as a result, the lesson planning 
is not, you know, hunting and pecking on the internet for materials. It's it's what they call, I think aptly so, intellectual preparation. It's it's preparation to prepare the provided lesson. That that's not any less work, but it's more enriching work. In other words, you're spending your time uh, studying student work. You're spending your time giving feedback. You're spending your time uh, practicing that lesson delivery. You're not spending, you know, uh, uh, that time, um, you know, fruitlessly searching for stuff. Um, and if you think about that, that's a better model, right? I mean, I, I, and this is confirmation bias on my part because I've, I've, I think I've long believed that's the best model. Um, you know, if, as an individual teacher, look, your your lesson plans that you prepare may be the best lesson plans on God's green earth, but somebody else can do that, right? Nobody else can can give your student feedback. Nobody else can build a relationship with that kid and and his or her family. Um, you know, no, nobody else uh, can study that student's work on and on and on. Like somebody else can write a lesson plan. Somebody else can write a curriculum. Only the teacher uh, can do that intellectual preparation for teaching and and one-on-one interaction with, with, with students. So it's not a question in my mind of whether or not uh, it's a valuable use of time for teachers to be preparing their own lesson plans. Is, is it, there, there are certain things that only you can do um, that others can do. And I think they've absolutely nailed that at Success Academy. And if, I, if, you, if you give me that magic wand, um, I'm still going to wave, wave, make that change in American education before I aim it at the teacher's union. So what, what you're saying is Success Academy have these, I guess, templates for, for, for teachers to, to work from so they don't have to spend so much time creating these lesson plans. But, but, but who, makes those, who makes those templates? I mean, do they have Oh, they've got a teachers? gigantic network. Yeah, yeah, they've they've got a gigantic network of 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 staff at their 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 or their, their their home base in Lower Manhattan uh, that are you know concocting lessons in every conceivable subject. Look, some of the, some of this is online. Um, you know, they have in recent years been putting some of their materials online. Uh, their their teacher training center, I think, it's called the Robertson Center, and and um, you know other schools can um, can beg, borrow, and steal from Success Academy. But I think it's important to realize it's not the lesson, it's how the lesson is used. Um, you know, again, I've confessed that I'm a bit of a curriculum fetishist, so I, I, I anger my, my fellow, you know, few curriculum devotees when I say this, but I mean it earnestly. I would rather my own daughter be in school with um, a teacher who adores and implements with fidelity a curriculum that I cannot stand then, then have them, you know, uh, uh, deliver my preferred flavor of curriculum um, coercively in a, in a forced march. So I think, you know, you, you can't just say, okay, take this curriculum from Success Academy and all will be well. You have to really look at that broader culture, how they use it, their, 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 their intellectual preparation, their habit of studying student work. Um, it's not just, oh, if I, teach, if I teach Success Academy's lesson, I'm going to get Success Academy's result. That, that, that obviously would not work. So why can't Success Academy scale? Like, why, why can't – based on the result. But, but based on the well, – but, I mean, but bigger and bigger, bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that gets us back to the controversies around charter schools. Um, it, it's interesting. Um, late in my reporting – for the book, I actually, I mean, I, I, the book is not about Eva Moskowitz. She's, you know, featured. She kind of flipped in and out of the narrative a little bit. But, you know, from at least a, eight or ten times during the year I spent with success, I would make some time to go visit with her in her office or go on, go along with her when she was visiting schools. Um, and at one point, at the end of the reporting, I asked her uh, that, that almost precisely that question. I said, you know, 
look, if, if you know what what uh, what percentage of the Success Academy program do you think could scale? And she said 100%. And and and, um, and my answer is less than that. I, I I don't think a lot of it would. Um, and it's for that reason that that or one of the reasons we we talked about earlier. In other words, you can't impose this. She's getting these results with parents who are maybe not all of them, but in the main signing up for this and enthusiastically supporting it. Well, you know, if you put Eva Moskowitz in charge of, I don't know, the Boston public schools or Chicago public schools or any other large metropolitan school district, she wouldn't be able to run them the same way she runs her schools. You wouldn't get to say, in effect, my way or the highway, because then you are the place where you go when when somebody says, I'll take the highway. You know, I'm not going to do it your way. Um, so in other words, if you can't control that culture the way you can in you know these quasi-private schools, let's, let's be candid, well, then you're probably not going to get those those same results. You no longer have that kind of sort of Damocles that you can, can hang over over parents to, to, to get your way. And, and we haven't said this, by the way. Uh, we can talk about it if you like. I'm not opposed to that. I mean, I'll, I'll, and this this is controversial. It, it doesn't bother me in the least, frankly, um, that she wants to impose these kind of school culture conditions on families, and and that families who don't want it leave. That that to me is perfectly appropriate for reasons that we can we can talk about. It's controversial because the ethos in America is we should be able to do, you know, this for every child, and I just don't know how realistic that is. So, you know, I'm, 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 I find it very, very difficult to argue with the results that she gets for those who want those results and those who are willing to, you know, pay the, the price in effort and, and compliance that it takes to get those results. Um, but that is not the same thing as we can do this for every child. And, and if you tried to, in other words, if, if she ran her school um, the way some other charters do, the first hundred kids in the door; those are the kids we're gonna. Um, um, those are the kids we're gonna take. I, I don't think she would get uh, as 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 good a result as she gets with the, the the kind of culture and conditions that she imposes. So, does this approach to do that in some <laughs> some dark room in Success Academy? Do they have to have the discussion of of what, how many people, how many families are going to drop out? Or what will you know to, to achieve success? Do you know what I mean? Like, do do they have to do this? Yeah, well, well, it, it manifests itself in a slightly different way. Another controversial part of Success Academy is is they do not what we call backfill. So, um, you know, at the risk of getting too complicated here, if you're a charter school, um, remember you are government funded but privately run. Well, you get a a a per pupil reimbursement from from the state of New York in, in in this case for the for the the students you enroll. So this incentivizes most schools to backfill. In other words, if a student leaves, they find somebody else to take that seat. Well, with with Success Academy's you know large waiting lists. Um, they would not have any trouble backfilling every open seat, but they stop that at fourth grade. So in other words, if, if a kid leaves in fifth grade, in middle school, in high school, they do not fill that seat. And uh, on the one hand, that kind of you know damages them economically because that's an empty seat that they could get reimbursed for that they don't. Um, but Moskowitz's um, you know, firm belief is that by the t- you know by the time a kid gets to fourth grade, it's just too late. They are too far behind. We can't catch them up. And it would hold back the other kids. I don't think she's wrong about that. At, at the end of the day, uh, interestingly enough, so many other uh, uh, 
well-known charter schools in America kind of started out as fifth through eighth grade as middle schools. And then they discovered two things. One, fifth grade was awfully late. And I say this knowingly because I was a fifth grade teacher. So I think they're right about that. And also at the end of eighth grade, they would, you know, release them back into the wild and they would go to really, you know, bad public schools and, and the gains would melt away. So over the years, a lot of the best named charter schools have started to, have tended to open up, have tended to go K-12. So they get them in early and they keep them through high school. Um, interestingly, what, a, a, an important part of Moskowitz's model that we haven't discussed is they only start in kindergarten. You know, they, 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 did, they never did a middle school and take kids from elsewhere. Their firm belief is they've got to start them in kindergarten and then keep them. But if they fall away after fourth grade, those seats stay empty. Um, and, and frankly, another kind of un, perhaps unlovely bit, bit of, of their model is if a kid uh, comes off the waiting list who is a fourth grader, they will assess them and say, well, you know, your seat is, is, is guaranteed. They have to give them the seat by law if, if the kid comes off the lottery. But they test and say, but, but unfortunately, we're going to start you in second grade because that's where you are. And then a lot of parents might say, well, hell, you know, that's two years behind. You know, I don't want my fourth grader, you know, being two years behind. And they, 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 they don't take the seat. Um, if it's a grade behind, they might. If it's two grades or more behind, they, 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 they tend not to. I mean, I don't doubt on that. I want to be clear. This nation. Um, but if that just, that's, a, that's another way in which they are kind of, and again, I, I tend to broadly support this theory because I think this is just what it takes. Um, that that is another way in which they kind of you know kind of game the 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 system to their favor to win to to win and it, I'm listening to myself say this and I, I sound like I'm I'm taking you know issue with it kids to get just as far just as fast as this is why this book was called how the other half learns if you want them to get the same outcomes as you know well off suburban kids um, well this this may be what it takes. So if we uh, pull back for a second here and, and, and get a little philosophical, uh, Success Academy strives for excellence. Is this something all schools should, should aim for? Uh, what, what's wrong with the pursuit of excellence, high standards and, and, and discipline? In, in my mind, nothing. But that's because I'm guilty of being one of those horrible traditional educators that we talked about, you know, up, up, up top. And I'm also mindful, I titled this book, How the Other Half Learns, is because a lot of the things that happen at a success academy are simply unremarkable elsewhere in the American education system. So, um, so my daughter went to a private school, a pair of private schools, pretty good private schools, um, for which we paid a premium price. And at no point did anybody accuse me of robbing the New York City school system of the resource that was my child. Um, if I didn't have the ability to pay tuition, we could have picked up and moved to, you know, Scarsdale in Westchester County or Montclair, New Jersey, or some other affluent community where your tuition payment is, is basically your ability to buy a million-dollar house. Again, uncontroversial. People do this all the time. No one says boo. Um, so along comes an Eva Moskowitz, who creates essentially the same kind of conditions, only this time it's favoring black and brown kids. And now it's now it's a problem. Now it's a controversy, which is interesting, right? So, in other words, why is it that we can, uh, if you are, if you are white and affluent in America, you functionally have every available option to you for, for for schooling your child, and it is not controversial. When somebody comes along and and tries to offer low-income black and brown students this pretty much the same thing, well, now it's a problem. 
Now it's a controversy. Now it's a political controversy. Now it's, um, you know, now we look at, at what she's doing and find all these reasons why she shouldn't be allowed to do it. Um, I, I'm not making a value judgment here. I just think that's, it's kind of, we, we all need to look in the mirror and ask ourselves, why is it controversial when when these conditions are created for, for low-income children, but they're uncontroversial uh, when when uh, they're done every day uh, for, for white and affluent people? But well, now, I mean, let's be obviously quite clear, because there, there are some differences. Like moving, the ability to afford a million dollar home in Scarsdale is not the same thing as putting hoops in front of parents to jump through to get into this school. I recognize, I'm not naive, that there's a difference. But 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 at, at the highest level of abstraction, in what they have in common is you're creating the conditions for success, right? Um, no pun intended. You're creating the conditions where parents are able to basically um, pull levers and and get what they want for their remarkable when when rich Americans do it, it's controversial when poor Americans. But it's interesting, Robert, because ethics one hundred and one would say that you know getting asking these parents to uh, you know be part of some greater good where they just keep their kids in a school that's not delivering, so it, it bumps everyone up. That's treating that's asking them to be treated as um, an, a means to an end and not an end unto themselves, which is is uh, frankly, oh, of course, it's unethical. Yeah. I, I, I'll, I'll remind listeners of what I said, you know, earlier, which is that the, the Success Academy school uh, that I observed in was was in the same school district where I was a public school teacher at a low-performing public school, and, and this is where I will, you know, gore the ox of, of my own tribe of, of charter school choice and ed reform enthusiasts. You know, the conventional wisdom in the ed reform world is that if you open it charter school in a neighborhood with, with lousy public schools, you are not quote, a rising tide that lifts all boats. I, I'm aware of the research. I'm aware of the data. It just strains my credulity. Um, in other words, when I think of this, the students that I had in my classroom who would be most likely to have left my classroom 20 years ago for a success academy had it existed, it's unimaginable to me that that could have had a anything other than a boundly deleterious on my own school and classroom culture and achievement. So the idea that this is somehow going to make my work better for purely competitive reasons just strikes me as being fanciful. You've got a very measured view of Success Academy. You, you know, you 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 sing its praises in, at times, but you're critical at times, and it's just hard to get a read on on on. Uh, what what you think you know needs to happen or what is happening um uh, boy do i not want to be the guy who says what should happen um that's let's let's, let's be really clear about that um mm-hmm. don't want the job never asked for it wouldn't accept it if it was if it was offered um look i mean something i say a lot and i mean it earnestly is is every conversation about education either very very quickly gets to well it's complicated or it's probably not worth having um, so this is complicated, right? Because, you know, it, when you look at education through kind of a policy lens, well, then the impetus is there should be a one, not, not a one-size-fits-all solution, but a solution that, that accounts for every contingency. And, and, and I don't know that that's realistic or, or, or possible. Um, I mean, it's, it's, to me, and the reason I titled the book, you know, How the Other Half Learns, is because there's, you know, there's kind of a contradiction in the way we look at this stuff, no matter how you know fair-minded or dispassionate we we think we might be. Um, and, and what I mean by that specifically is, 
um, you know, at least here in America, if you are white and affluent, you already have something like perfect school choice. Uh, you can uh, pay private school tuition. You can pick up and move to you know the, the the leafy suburbs where your tuition is basically your ability to afford a million dollar home, and your tuition is embedded in your property taxes. That that's that's unremarkable. I mean, this is this is the point. Nobody says boo uh, if if somebody does that. I mean, um, it, it just happens every day. And now along comes Eva Moskowitz and creates this thing called Success Academy, which is arguably the closest thing that low-income black and brown families in New York City have to exactly that prerogative, exactly that ability to self-select and say, no, 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 I want this for my child. Now, when she does that, suddenly, well, that's a controversy. You know, that's a problem. Um, so I think, you know, the, the entire point is it kind of holds a mirror up to our own attitudes and beliefs and says, OK, well, if, 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 it's, if it's OK for me to pull my daughter out of the public school system and it's unremarkable you know, whether I pay private school tuition or move, then why is it a problem if, if parents who all they have is their ambition and their investment in their children, uh, why is it a problem when they self-select uh, and, and choose Success Academy for, for, for their kid? I, I don't want to be the guy who answered that question, but I think it's one we need to be candid about and, and realize that you know there is a double standard. I've got a couple, a couple of follow-ups. So uh, one thing just to come out of what, you, what you've been saying is, it, by my land now, you don't need any advice from a penal colony. Uh, like Australia, and uh, uh, and you had several generations to write the ship. You're and <laughs> and largely we've got we've got we got our own issues here, and we're you know we don't have the highs and we don't have the lows, and that's why people move here and they like that. But my my feeling is as as, a, as someone who's visited America and is and loves America in the in the Frank Capra sense, uh, uh, I, I feel that. Um, mm. You know, you don't have because you don't have uh, that so that Medicare which we have. Like, so you can here you can get on the dole and you can have Medicare. So the lowest you can fall is not to the bottom. Do you know what I mean? Like, you 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 will be caught in mm -hmm. that. And if you wanted to clock out and, and go, you know what, I'm just going to get on the dole and and get my teeth fixed and that then that you could do that. But in America, I, I saw a lot of people just 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 anecdotally that. Um, can fall much further and much quicker, and 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 I fear, and particularly if you're in, in in these vulnerable communities, and so I just see the fight from you know after reading your book, and I've read Eva Moskowitz's book as well. It seems so desperate in 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 parts, like it seems like an existential fight. Uh, you know that the only way to to get out and get what um, a middle class uh, uh, you know sort of existence is to have an extraordinary education i mean i might be i don't know what i'm talking about really but i just feel like that 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 the that the success academy uh, uh um that you talk about in your book i read it and i was like this is do this do this get out get out get out and and get 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 yeah. get your healthcare so so what am i what am i missing in in, in this um, wow, we could probably spend another hour talking about, and I'm out of my depth on the, on the culture of, of Australia. But I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I can talk obviously a little bit about the culture of America. Um, it, it's a it's a vexing question, but but when you were when you were speaking just now, it occurred to me that the most important character, uh, and I, you know, I, I'm making air quotes around the word character because it's a nonfiction book, but the most important person the reader meets in my book, to my way of thinking, uh, is not a Success Academy 
teacher or student, and it's not Eva Moskowitz. It's this girl, Tiffany, that I described from when I was uh, a fifth grade teacher uh, in the South Bronx 20 years ago. Uh, and you know, for, for those who, um, which is I'm sure most of our listeners who haven't and will not read the book, you know, Tiffany, in retrospect, was she was a fifth grader that I had my second year teaching at the at what was literally the lowest performing school in the lowest performing district in in the South Bronx. Um, but what you need to know about this girl is that she was profoundly bought in. I mean, you know, she, she came to school every day in a school uniform that she didn't have to wear, but her mother insisted on. She did her homework, you know, flawlessly every day. She was with me as a teacher. Like I never looked up and once saw, you know, Tiffany gazing out the window. She was just, you know, a focused, diligent kid. Every teacher knows what I'm talking about. Every teacher of low-income kids in America has this student and sometimes several of these students. And um, I, I think I said this in the book, but this, this young lady at age 10 changed the trajectory of my career. Um, and she did it unwittingly because, you know, uh, this, you know to, to paint the picture of the school, it was a very low-performing school and Tiffany was on grade level. You know, she was a level three. In other words, we have this system in America, or at least in New York State, where I'm a teacher. You know, you're either a level on your on your required state tests. You are level one, which means you're below grade level. Level two, euphemistically approaching grade level. Level three, on grade level or above grade level. So she was uh, what we called back then a double three. She was on grade level in math and reading in a school where almost no one was a level three. You know, they were all ones and twos. So, but she was this just sweet, earnest, diligent kid. And I, I pointed out to my AP one day, I said, hey, I'm not doing anything for Tiffany. Um, and she kind of, you know, just was, shot me a look and said, well, she's not your problem. Um, and what she meant by that was, why are you even talking about this kid who was delivering the results that we need? Um, you've got ones and twos in your class, Pontesio. You've got kids who are, you know, swinging from the lighting fixtures. Why, why does this even bother you? I mean, that was the, my surmise, you know, my take on what she was saying. But now look at that through the lens of Tiffany or worse, you know, her parents, her mom, her single mom. I, I'm supposed to look at a 10-year-old fifth grader as finished goods because she's, you know, she's getting on grade level on, on by the debased standards of a, of a mediocre state test. That, that's good enough for who? You know, it wouldn't be good enough for my child. It wouldn't be good enough for your child. But, but every impetus in, in the public school system said, good enough. You know, why are you worried about this? She is, quote, a not your problem child. I've used that phrase, you know, for 20 years since then, you know, the not your problem child. So this is the kid that, in, you know, in, in a way, when I was in Success Academy 20 years later, monitoring, you know, spending a year observing, what did I see in every single seat in that school? Tiffany. She was that kid. Like, she was the kid that if a Success Academy had existed, um, you know, when I was her teacher, she'd have been the first out the door and, and rightly so, because, you know, nobody at Success Academy would dare say, she's not your problem, right? In other words, they, they, they are there. You, you don't have to love Eva Moskowitz. And I said earlier, I'm not her cheerleader, but you can be damn sure that nobody at Success Academy would ever say to her teacher at a Success Academy, what my assistant principal said to me, she's not your problem. So, you know, point well taken about the, the highs and the lows in America, but the culture here is you get to go as far and as fast as your ambition and talents will take, right? And, and we are literally stopping uh, talented kids from doing that in this country. Now, I, I cannot solve that problem. I, you know, it is beyond my comprehension 
how you fix that for every child in the United States of America. But I have seen now how you can possibly fix it for Tiffany. Is, is that a satisfying solution? Well, it is for Tiffany. Great answer. Yeah, yes. no, I, yeah. I think that's... Um... Ricky, you go. Yes, well, I, I had a question just uh, bringing us back a little bit to some of the criticisms of of uh, charter schools and the Success Academy. And it, it seems that the, the posture of Success Academy seems to be that the, the, the world is tough and it, it doesn't owe you anything and therefore you need to work hard to succeed. And is, is part of the problem that this is in direct opposition with the idea that it's systems of power and dynamics, power dynamics that need to change uh, as opposed to taking personal responsibility? Do you think that has something to play? Uh, at play here. Oh, you got any easy questions? <laughs> man, oh man, I mean, you, you kind of want me to put, you know, all of American life and culture on, on, on <laughs> and diagnose it. And, and man, am I you're American, can't you? That? Can't you just, um, you know, give us <laughs> all the key? Speaking, of, speaking on behalf of my 330 million countrymen who all agree with me. No, you know, it, I, I, I don't think I have a satisfying answer, um, I, I, you know, because your point is well taken, you know, a good society um, or it, OK, let, let's narrow it to the things that we, we, we talk about intelligently, a good education ecosystem. Right. I can't solve American society, but you know, I can I, I, I get paid to think about American education. So a good education ecosystem should have an answer for every child. Right. That's that should be where we set the bar. Uh, it doesn't have to be the same answer for every child. Um, but I mean, you know, at, at, at the risk of you know going back over what I said about Tiffany just now, I, I, I do the thing that 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 I lose sleep over. You know, it, it is the that um, there's just two different systems of, of of education. You really are, I think, able to kind of take full advantage of your talent and ambition as long as you have. You know the means and the mechanisms to do so, um, and I and I I don't think I'm wrong about this. For the vast majority of low-income kids in America, be they black or brown, white, rural, whatever, um, I, I just don't think we've solved that problem yet. Um, or at the risk of being provocative, I I, I think we are at, at risk in America of making equity the 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 enemy of excellence. Right? Um, it's funny. I, I mean. I don't wake up in the morning seeking to be provocative or controversial. I just kind of see these contradictions. And when I was finishing the book, uh, there's a quote at the end that I labored long and hard over whether I should include it, because it's from Charles Murray, who, interestingly enough, he's now my my colleague at the American Enterprise Institute. He was wow. Um, wow. And and um, it was uh, it was a provocative quote from uh, one of his books about education. And, you know, I left it in because I just didn't want to steal his ideas, frankly, and I thought it was just kind of, you know, wrong journalistically to steal it. And, and, and the quote was something to the effect of, it is not the job of public policy to identify the worthy, it's the job of policy, maybe, maybe it's the government, to allow the worthy to identify themselves. Now, I, I frankly don't care for the word worthy in, in, in that quote, but I, I think he's nailed it there in terms of at least in a country like America that does have a tradition of, you know, minimal public involvement and and really being kind of the kind of place where you, you know, rise to your own level. Well, that that made a great deal of sense to me, you know, that that we should have a system 
um, that obviously tries to safeguard the interest of every child, but really unshackles talent and ambition. Or, or I guess another way to say it is I think we have a bigger problem with putting artificial speed limits and, and, and limits on, on low-income kids, kids of color, um, then um, that, that may be the biggest problem that we have uh, in, in, in this country is that we are, um, you know, it, again, if you, are, if you are affluent and have, you know, white and have means, then that's not a problem for you. If you're low-income, black and brown, then, then, then it is. Interesting quote, nobody said boo about that, about that Charles Murray quote. I, I expected to be pilloried for it. Uh, to this day, nobody has ever said, oh, Pondicia is quoting Charles Murray. Um, no, but uh, it, it, you know, there were other things that people took issue with in the book, but not that. Well, Robert, obviously we're we're coming to the to close of our discussion, but but, uh, but what I I like about your work is that you you know you are pragmatic and you don't let politics uh, sort of infect your work one way or the other. Uh, however, I would say that um, you know particularly where where the, where you are in New York in in that book you're certainly not operating in a vacuum in a political vacuum so what's so fascinating and I've read Eva's book as well so uh you really do get a sense of the way it works in a blue a blue city you know and uh and we we come across this all the time because we're moderate guys so in in some of the institutions you work at it's really left on left violence it's just moderates versus versus <laughs> versus extremists that's all it is in a lot of the places that we like there's no you can't there's no Archie Bunker figure that you can pin all of your hatred on. It's just, and so the moderate person in the room, so you come across as someone, and take this as a compliment, as as someone out of the, like in that West Wing mentality of like, oh, we want robust, we're going to hear all the ideas and, you know, let's get to the bottom of it, like Toby Ziegler or something, right? And, uh, and I feel that, you know, those people are fighting an uphill battle because what we've got is in in education, but just by what I've read, is the entire sector is completely populated by, let's say, for the lack of a better term, Democrats, and, and mostly well-meaning le- uh, centre-left to more ardent adherents. So doesn't that homogeneity make the job of reform uh, more difficult or, or is this not, not an issue? I think it does, but maybe not for the reasons that you're suggesting. Um, I mean, it's funny. On the one hand, I, I often joke, um, usually privately, that my, my progressive credentials were in pretty good order until I became a South Bronx school teacher, and then I kind of had, you know, a Damascus Road conversion. Uh, and thank you for the compliment of, of you know, my what you perceive to be my kind of political moderateness or neutrality. I don't get that a lot, and I feel like, like why don't I? I think I'm a reasonable person. Um, but you know, if you're, I, I think if you are not, um, you know. Um, up to your neck in in the orthodoxies that you're describing, then it is simply assumed that you are hostile to, to them. <clears throat> I mean, the, the irony here is that I'm an unrepentant disciple of E.D. Hirsch Jr., who, if he's unfamiliar to our listeners, uh, he wrote one of these kind of you know out of left field bestsellers 40 years ago called Cultural Literacy. You know, I, th- I think subtitles what every child needs to know, and you know Hirsch is not only a man of the left, you know, by his own description, he says, I'm practically a socialist, but I'm, I'm a, you know, an unapologetic disciple of his work for the simple reason that he is the one theorist in education who described what I saw in my South Bronx classroom every damn day. You know, kids who could decode, read the printed word, but struggled to, to understand it. And, you know, in, in my master's classes, in my professional development, I would, you know, bring up his work and, 
and I would, you know, hear two things. You know, one was, well, you know, kids are, are not comprehending because they're not engaged, because the curriculum doesn't look like him. Oh, and by the way, that Hirsch is that that, that Hirsch guy, that's that dead white guy stuff. Nobody takes that seriously. And <laughs> wait a minute. That's what I was that's thinking. Not what his work is about at all. His, his work is about vocabulary and background knowledge and 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 what he is diagnosing, what he is pres- prescribing is exactly what my students need. Why aren't we giving this to them? You know, blah, 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 conservative, blah, 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 dead white guys, blah, blah, blah. There's a thousand reasons, but at the end of the day, I mean, it's ironic, that that, that is my flavor of education, that, you know, and, and it has been for 20 years. Um, and I, I think, you know, there is something that every American child needs, and it's, and it's what Hirsch prescribes. It's that kind of you know, I don't want to call it a canon because I don't think what he does is canonical. I think what he does is, does is curatorial. In other words, you know, Hirsch in a sentence is, look, there, there are things that literate people know and assume that you know, and language depends on that, uh, those assumptions being correct to, to, to function. So, you know, um, for, for 20 years, I've been... You know, but this goes against the, the, the postmodern um, project, doesn't it? It goes against... You're, you're saying... You, well, that's exactly right. You have to be yeah. able to say... You have to be able to say there, there, there are some, some concrete ideas that we may be able to agree upon. There may be... You know, whether you like Hamlet or not, it's probably worth reading it. You know what I mean? Like, you're coming from a uh, that perspective, but the, 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 in the postmodern or the critical theory uh, way of thinking... Uh, you know, we can't agree on the on on the, the the basic elements because you can't you can't get to talking about to be or not to be because they're too busy saying, well, you know, I'm not even going to say it what they would say, but I think it would have something to do with <laughs> I think it would have something to do with white supremacy, <laughs> probably, <laughs> probably, probably, probably. Look, no, I, I think that's right, and I mean, you know. Um, I, again, I I don't seek to be provocative in in the work that I do, but if I wanted to be provocative, I would probably write a piece called "Language Doesn't Give a an F What You Think." Um, and and what I mean by that is, um, um, you know, for good or for ill, whether you like it or not, language, um, vernacular English, so to speak, is a cultural construct. It just is, and and it does it won't do to complain about it or try to change it. It's it's you know it's like a river that 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 is powerful enough to scour its own banks. So as as educators, you have the choice of resisting it, which is fruitless, or or you know or or teaching it, as it were. I cannot change the fact that vernacular English reflects the dominant language culture, which yes happens to be you know European and white in nature. Um, you know, so so I guess another way to say this is you know as a teacher, you have two choices. Uh, one change the world for the child or, cha- or or adapt the child for the world. Those are both really, really hard to do, but one of them is a lot less hard than the other. So if, if, if you look at, at language proficiency through that Hersheyan lens, you, 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 you say, look, our job is, is to prepare children for, um, for you know, productive adult life. Is, is there a cultural component to that? Yes, there is, and I can't help it. I think you've hit it on it there. That the, 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 I think to, to put a bow on it, the Eastern philosophy point in there is you can either cover the world in leather, you know, uh, or put put some on your shoes. It's the different, you know, to, to get around <laughs> what the, a the great expression. And well, this is, it comes from <laughs> I've, I've from never the, heard that before. It comes from the Buddha, and and so mm. what we're talking about is the difference between the people who try and cover the world in leather and say 
I need to change the whole system before we can start to get anywhere. And the people who who try, who it sounds like a little bit you and 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 somewhat I'd hate to put you in Eva's camp, but you know you are talking about putting leather on kids' shoes and getting them equipped for the future. Yeah. So which I, oh, I think is unapologetically, I think that's our, our almost a sacred obligation that we have is is to prepare children uh, for for success. And, and by the way, lest I seem like a you know a a canonical white supremacist apologist, let me quickly add that you know um, American culture and and vernacular English is is an adaptive machine. We are forever you know borrowing idiomatic language from from different cultures um, and whatnot. So in other words, this will change. There, there, the, the day will come where where American vernacular English is less Eurocentric, is less white as it were. But my point is that's an organic process. You know, you cannot really dictate it. You can't control it. Um, I, you know, I, I, I'm a great believer that it will happen over time. Hirsch, I believe, points out that, look, you can pick up a dictionary from, from 100 years ago, and it's still perfectly useful for, you know, 99% of the tasks that you need a dictionary for. If we, if, we, if, if we lived in a world where you still went to the bookshelf and took out a dictionary as opposed to, you know, looking it up online. But his point is well taken. You know, language does evolve idiomatic language uh, does evolve. Um, what, what I think we're doing is trying to engineer it or, or, or push the process. And, and you know, like I said before, language doesn't care what we think. It just does what it does. Mm. Well, I think that's, that's really well said. Uh, we, we have a couple of questions left, Robert, um, uh, before we let you go. The easy um, ones. E- easier ones, hopefully. Oh. Uh, it it, it yeah, seems thanks. that it seems that to make big changes, you need to pay a personal cost. Uh, I mean, we've seen this with, with Eva Moskowitz. I mean, she's 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 hounded by uh, a lot of people out there. Uh, and you have to be willing to be smeared and shunned, uh, often by your own side of politics. Does this deter people from entering the fight? What a great question. Um, I mean, I, you know, um, I, I, I said a couple of times that I'm not Eva's cheerleader, but I, I, I should um, say that I admire her enormously for exactly the reasons that your question implies. Um, you know, whether you like her or, or dislike her, whether you, you know, her flavor of education is yours or not, um, she knows her mind. Uh, she is, you know, absolutely fearless in her convictions and tireless in her efforts. And that's admirable. Um, you know, so so uh, you know, we, I feel like we used to have more of those people in in education. You know, I'm I'm a bit of a graybeard, literally. You know, a bit of a graybeard. Um, 20 years ago, in education, you know, there there was this kind of you know bright shining moment where reform was just kind of, kind of cool, where you had you know um, uh, charter school people and and young hard charging superintendents you know, of, of school districts and and states. Um, and they were polarizing figures, people like you know Michelle Lee in 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 Washington, um, for example. Um, and I I don't feel like we have them anymore. I feel like you know the 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 air has gone out of the balloon a little bit, and people are simply just less willing to be um, to be that to you know say, look, I'm going to be unpopular, but it's it's you know it's right for kids, so I'm willing to take the slings and arrows. Uh, you know, so Eva Moskowitz is almost a singular figure now in 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 that regard, and so you know, kudos to her for uh, for her bravery. Um, she doesn't have to be doing what she's doing. I, I think I made this point in the book. Like it always kind of you know I, I chuckle when people say you know oh it's outrageous she's paying herself you know more than you know more than the the the, the head of uh, more than the governor more than the mayor more than the person who runs the Department of Education. And I always think to myself because I've got a background in the private sector long before I came to to education. 
Like, do you have any idea what this woman would earn if she were like the CEO of a mid-sized company? Because she could be. Um, the the culture that she she has created in an organization that is the size of a mid-sized, even large company is a, is singular. I never saw anything like it in in the corporate world. So there's no doubt in my mind that she would be not just successful, you know, as a CEO of a of a, of a corporation, but she would be wildly successful. So to begrudge her that she pays herself generously for, for what she's created for low-income kids of color seems not only churlish, but obtuse. Well, uh, you've been so generous with your time, Rob. We have one final little question we ask all of our guests. Uh, we'd like to know what you're reading right now. Oh, wow. Um, what a great question. I have not, um, it's funny, I was just beating myself up for not um, you know, making enough time for, for reading. <clears throat> my, my, my dirty little secret is is I've discovered audiobooks as a way to kind of make time for reading um i i in the last year uh, i've re- i've rediscovered fiction i think until i was about 30 i read nothing but fiction and since 30 i've re- read nothing but non-fiction um and and i've realized boy i really should confess this um how much you know, classic fiction i've missed out on and and i just find it a struggle to make time for it so i've um i've started in the last year to really devouring audiobooks i just yesterday finished moby dick and, and I mean, how weird is it to confess at age 59, I've finally gotten around to Moby Dick. Um, but in the last year, I've been kind of making my way through, you know, through, through again, classic literature, through, through Hemingway, through Faulkner, um, you know, kind of these, these canonical works of American literature, some of which I've read as a student, some of which I have not. Um, but audiobooks of, of, um, of classic American literature has become my kind of my, my guilty pleasure when I'm out. You know, working in the yard in the afternoon to say, oh, I'm going to do my, I'm going to do my reading now, and then they go out and mow the lawn and listen to an audio. Well, there's uh, absolutely nothing wrong with audiobooks, and I can confess that listening to your book on audio book uh, on Audible, which I <laughs> oh, so encourage, which so, I so which sorry. I encourage everybody <laughs> to listen to or to read if if that is uh, the way you do it. It's called How the Other Half Learns, and it, it really is a, a fantastic I- insight into another way of, of looking at education. And uh, I've I've also read Eva Moskowitz's book, and I think that um, Roberts is 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 the superior because. Ultimately, uh, you know, he's he's looking under all the rocks, uh, whereas Eva is um, taking out the trash <laughs> for the last few chapters. She's, <laughs> she's, she's, she settles some scores. It's like it's like that scene in The Godfather where take take where she Michael takes care of the five families. She just like goes right here's here's all the journalists that have upset me. You know, anyway, we won't get into that. But um, I wanted to just to thank you one more time. Uh, and oh, actually, I should tell the listener I have an insight into what kind of teacher uh, Robert would be because we did have a, a an interruption and uh, a lot of sort of back and forth had to happen to make this happen. And um, he went over and above to make this, this to, to, to finish this interview. And I have, I could just picture you up late at night making materials for those kids. I can picture it. Uh, I miss being in the classroom full time. Thank you. That's a very, very, very lovely, a lovely thing to say. I appreciate that. Um, and um, I think I, I, I would like to get back into the classroom because until the pandemic, I, I think I, I was a part-time teacher teaching a civics class at a charter school in New York and, and I've fallen away from that since the pandemic. But it's a part of it selfish because if you do what I do for a living, people who don't like what you do will are quick to say to you, well, what you know, when was the last time you were in the classroom? And boy, did I love being able to say Friday. Um, <laughs> that's a great answer. That's great. And, 
and I want to get back to being able to say that maybe as as, as soon as fall. I think you should. Yes. Uh, well, uh, again, thank thank you, Robert, uh, and uh, we hope to have you back uh, someday in the future. Yes, thank you. Anytime. I really appreciate that. The thoughtful questions. This was time well spent, and, and I really enjoyed it. Thank you for your your your, your thoughtfulness and, and for the good time.